Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ideological split in the Democratic Party, the inevitability of this fight playing out, and the self-defeating nature of trying to squash dissent rather than allowing for constructive debate. But before we get started, I have a couple of thoughts that I would like for you to take with you into this topic. When I was doing research for today's show, I was reminded of a story. I, I don't know how well-known this story is or even where I first heard it, but it has to do with the military. And I think that it's a surprisingly good analogy for a lot of what we're going to hear about politics, electability, uh, the Democratic Party, the 2020 election, and so forth. So going back to the age of uh, sort of the dawn of the age of jet planes in the Air Force, moving away from the propellers and whatnot, moving into jets, airplanes were becoming more complicated. We were asking more of pilots to uh, be able to maneuver these planes. And during this era, there was a, a sadly high crash rate amongst pilots. You know, many died, not all, of course, but the Air Force was struggling to figure out what the problem was. And they tested the planes, did everything they could to see if the planes were malfunctioning, and it really didn't seem like they were. The planes were functioning the way they were supposed to. And so the, their only conclusion was user error, pilot error. And the pilots, of course, disagreed with this. They said, no, 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 we think we know what we're doing, but these planes are really hard to fly. And so there was just sort of this confusion about what the problem was for a while until one researcher came to a conclusion. It was based on the idea, or the fact actually, that cockpits for these planes had been designed for decades based on the average pilot size. They would take hundreds or even thousands of pilots, measure them in every possible way you can imagine, average out all of these dimensions and all of these measurements from, from these pilots, and then design the cockpits accordingly based on these measurements, thinking we've cast the widest net we possibly can with all these different pilots. We already know that we're, you know, we're not going to recruit extremely tall or extremely short pilots. We're going to have these sort of average build size people anyway. And then we measured them and averaged out all their dimensions. And so these cockpits are going to be designed to fit the greatest number of people possible. And as it turns out, when you do that, you actually design a cockpit that is almost good enough for maybe a lot of people, but is actually good enough for no one. Because the surprising fact is that no one is average in all the ways. When you take all these different areas of measurement and get the average for all of them, and then you try to find someone who matches that average, you can't find anybody. It's very strange that, that that's the case, but that's how it works out. And so they were designing these cockpits for as many people as possible. And what they ended up doing was designing a cockpit that was a good fit for no one. So once this discovery was made and the argument was put forward that we needed to, uh, rather than designing one cockpit to fit as many people as possible, we needed to, to design 
adjustable cockpits, adjustable seats, adjustable pedals, adjustable uh, yoke handles, you know, all the meters, all, all the switches that people had to uh, use when flying the plane had to be adjustable to fit anyone who was going to sit in that chair. And the result was that the crash rate and the death rate plummeted, went way down, thanks entirely to the redesign of these cockpits. And so the lesson is, even if it's well-meaning, which of course it usually is, if if you set out to cast the widest net possible and you design for this elusive, middle, average person, what you inevitably end up doing is, first of all, not succeeding in designing for the average because no such thing exists. And on top of it, you end up designing incredibly poorly for everyone else. Whereas alternately, if you set out to solve the actual problems of individual people, you end up designing a much better system that makes far more people happy. And then the last piece of the analogy, which is eerily accurate, is that you end up saving actual human lives in the process. So keep all that in mind as we hear how the intra-party fighting amongst the Democrats is panning out and the various arguments that are being made for how the party should move forward attempting to attract voters in pursuit of electoral victory. Now, just a quick reminder that if you'd like to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We're in particular need of new members right now, so if you get value out of this show and have a few dollars a month available to help us produce it, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, on to the show. Clips today come from No Filter. Citations Needed, The Vast Majority, The Majority Report, Democracy Now!, and Ring of Fire. Nancy Pelosi has launched an all-out war against progressive freshman Democrats in Congress. Her disdain for representatives Ocasio-Cortez, Omar Tlaib, and Presley were outlined in an op-ed by Maureen Dowd in the New York Times, where Pelosi described how frustrated she was that the women voted against appropriating $4.6 billion for border security. Pelosi told Dowd, quote, all these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, but they didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they got. First of all, there were more Democrats who actually voted against that appropriations bill. She conveniently left out why the freshman Democrats voted against the appropriations bill in the first place. It was essentially $4.6 billion for the Trump administration with no strings attached. There was nothing attached to the funding to indicate that the administration would have to improve the conditions of migrant detention facilities, the very cages that dozens of people have died or gotten sick from. Now, AOC responded to Pelosi's statements by telling the Washington Post, quote, when these comments first started, I kind of thought that she was keeping the progressive flank at more of an arm's distance in order to protect more moderate members, which I understood. But the persistent singling out, it got to a point where it was just outright disrespectful. The explicit singling out of newly elected women of color. All it took was a small pushback from AOC to set a firestorm. Dowd, who proudly presented Pelosi with a box of chocolates during her interview for her op-ed, 
wrote a follow-up piece that was even more vicious toward the progressive lawmakers. She wrote, quote, Pelosi told me after the AOC squad voted against the House's version of the border bill and trashed the moderates, the very people who provided the Democrats the majority, that the squad was four people with four votes. She was talking about a legislative reality. If it was a knock, it was for abandoning the party. That did not merit AOC's outrageous accusation that Pelosi was targeting newly elected women of color. She slimed the speaker who has spent her life fighting for the downtrodden and who was instrumental in getting the first African American president elected and passing his agenda against all odds as a sexist and a racist. AOC should consider the possibility that people who disagree with her do not disagree with her color. First off, AOC never accused Pelosi of being racist or sexist for that matter. What she was trying to draw attention to was the fact that these young women are already dealing with violent vitriol from the right as a result of being progressive women of color. The added public hatred directed toward them by Pelosi further exacerbates that problem. Dowd seems to have a hard time even understanding the seriousness of death threats against freshman Democrats. In her latest op-ed, she writes, the young lawmaker asked why Pelosi would criticize them, knowing the amount of death threats and attention they get. Huh? What's wrong, Dowd? You don't understand what it's like to be a woman of color or a woman in the media at all. I mean, being a woman who has any type of opinion or fights for anything aggressively is gonna have to deal with death threats, especially in the age of Trump, when you have people literally sending pipe bombs to various members of Congress and also to CNN. Now, before Dowd wrote her latest column, AOC was even explicitly asked if she thought Pelosi was racist. It's singling out four individuals. Um, And knowing the media environment that we're operating in, knowing the amount of death threats that we get, knowing the amount of of concentration of attention, I think it's just it's it's just worth asking why. Do you think she has racial animus? Is she racist? No, no, absolutely not. She said no. She doesn't think that Pelosi's racist. Absolutely not. Now, while Dowd accuses freshman Democrats of weaponizing race to advance their own political agenda, the official Twitter account for House Democrats weaponized race to go after AOC's chief of staff, Shoykat Shakarbardi. According to Vox, the official Twitter account for House Democrats, managed by Representative Hakeem Jeffries, fired off an incendiary tweet about Shoykat Shakarbardi, Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff, accusing him of, quote, singling out a Native American woman of color, Representative Sharice Davids. So what exactly did AOC's chief of staff tweet to get them so riled up? Here's what he said, I think the point still stands. I don't think people have to be personally racist to enable a racist system. And the same could be said of the Southern Democrats. I don't believe Sharice is a racist person, but her votes are showing her to enable a racist system. He was making a point about how voting in favor of the $4.6 billion appropriation bill that Trump wanted enabled his racist treatment of migrants. I mean, that's pretty easy to understand, right? But the House Democrats Twitter account tried to twist what he meant. In response, the account tweeted, who is this guy? And why is he explicitly singling out a Native American woman of color? Her name is Congresswoman Davids, not Sharice. She is a phenomenal new member who flipped a red seat blue. Keep her name out of her mouth, complete with brown clapping emojis. 
A Democratic senior aide told Vox that the House Democrats Twitter account belonged to Representative Jeffries. So he can do whatever he wants. But I do find it interesting that establishment Democrats are taking this approach when it was Pelosi who was crying about the use of social media to critique members of the party. Look, all of this is a distraction. Establishment Democrats are getting defensive because they know they enabled Trump by handing him billions of dollars without safeguards for migrants. While a handful of freshman Democrats remain uncorrupted and ready to fight for justice and the American people, Pelosi and her allies continue to cower and show their lack of leadership. At the same time, they'll project and accuse others in their own party of weaponizing race when they're the ones who have been guilty of deploying that strategy over and over again. I knew Pelosi was bad, but I have to admit that I was naive enough to think that she would fight Republicans harder than progressives. Damn, I was definitely wrong. So there's been a lot of talk lately about the extent to which the squad is now the face of the Democratic Party. This is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Elon Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, who are women of color who they're called the squad. Their politics are actually quite divergent. But Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar are probably the more actual progressives. For the purposes of this episode, we'll talk specifically about Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar, since that's really who Fox News obsesses over. Fox News is absolutely obsessed with Ocasio-Cortez, as we've talked about on the show. But over the past few weeks, there's been a back and forth between the Democratic, quote-unquote, establishment, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, mm-hmm. uh, your kind of traditional centers of liberal opinion-making, MSNBC, so forth, and Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar, who had a back and forth in Politico and via a Maureen Dowd, a couple Maureen Dowd columns, where Nancy Pelosi basically said, Twitter's not that important. Ocasio-Cortez needs to sort of get in line. Mm-hmm. Ocasio-Cortez shot back and basically made the claim that she's going to fight for what she's going to fight for, and she's going to use Twitter whenever she wants because it's her main outlet. So long story short, the response to this led to a lot of both sides takes <laughs> about how liberals need to sort of come together mm-hmm. and make sure that they don't, quote unquote, divide the party or help the other side. And this was something once all over and over again. So the impetus was this really facile tweet by John Favreau from Pod Saves America, who's sort of the king of facile tweets. He said, quote, hey, all you Democrats who work in Washington together, maybe get off Twitter, get into a room next week and work out your problems like adults because, all caps, Donald fucking Trump is president. So this is sort of great RT bait for kind of low information liberals, 28,000 retweets. But this was not an unoriginal sentiment. This was extremely common. Right. So the entire idea here that we've seen both in social media, but also then in the pages, you know, opinion pages, news columns of straight news that talks about the now growing feud between namely Pelosi and the squad. And they mix and meld and they wind up being all this mush of saying the same thing, which is this. Air these party grievances in the back room. Don't do it in public because God forbid anyone actually talks about real things because there's a bigger demon out there and it's Donald Trump. Like that's the crux of all of this saying that if you actually address divisions in the party, you are then breaking down 
<laughs> the party itself. And clearly that will just be exploited and then there will be no real opposition. So one example of this that we saw fairly recently, this is from July 11th, 2019 in the Boston Herald. And it was a piece with this headline, Pelosi feud with AOC and Presley sows division among Democrats. And the article, as you can imagine, as we've been discussing, scolds the squad for, quote, sowing division at a time when the Democratic Party needs to protect a unified and more centrist front to retain its majority and knock Donald Trump from office, political observers say, end quote. The article goes on to say this. While other minority representatives have jumped to the freshman lawmaker's defense, political experts tell the Herald that Pelosi is doing what she needs to do to maintain democratic control of the House. So these political experts that are then quoted, referenced in this article, there are three of them, and they are... In turns, um, an analyst at Brookings, a D.C. Democratic operative who uh, previously worked in the Bill Clinton White House on the National Economic Council, and thirdly, a University of Virginia professor who has a uh, electoral newsletter called Crystal Ball, which incidentally in 2016 predicted that Hillary Clinton would win 322 electoral college votes soaring to victory. Uh, that obviously did not happen. And yet these are the political experts quoted by the Boston Herald saying that the squad needs to get in line, needs to be more not only unified with the party, but explicitly more centrist. So one example of this Patrick Dorton, who's the Democratic operative called a strategist, of course, in the piece, is quoted calling Ocasio-Cortez and others, quote, bullies and advises this, quote, if the Democratic Party wants to win in 2020, they need to be on the same team. And right now, that's Pelosi's team. End quote. Incidentally, uh, Dorton is the same person who earlier this year told the Herald that Beto O'Rourke is, quote, the only person on the Democratic side that's as nimble as Trump. Yeah. And also said that, quote, the closest thing to Bill Clinton and Obama in this field is Beto. He's the only candidate that talks in terms of creating a movement. I think there's been a tremendous hunger for a Beto candidacy. So anyway, that's that guy. And so, yeah, the article is all about getting in line, playing ball, and not stepping out from the establishment line. Well, right. So there's an empirical question here. The first thing, which we'll expand upon later, is the idea that people use centricism interchangeably with things voters like. This is basically conventional wisdom, and I'm excited to talk to our guest Max about it because there's this idea that that which is centrist is inherently popular mm -hmm. and more agreeable. Yeah. Well, the idea that like most people live in the middle, right? Yeah. That that means that that's popular because it's been established as center. Which is just not true. Some far left wing things, quote unquote, far left wing things pull well. Some don't pull well. Some far right wing things pull well. People are not really one way or the other. You know, obviously Medicare for all, depending on who you ask the question, is extremely popular. That's considered a far left thing. And several of the columns we'll reference today. But then there's the second question, which is an empirical one, which is, is there any evidence that intra-party fighting weakens a party? Mm -hmm. There really isn't. So um, Julia Azari, who writes for 538, among other places, she's a researcher. She mentioned on Twitter that the evidence for whether or not intra-party fighting hurts is actually quite mixed. There was a Stanford study, because I, I want to engage the actual research into this, but there was a Stanford study in May of 2016, conveniently timed, that showed that, quote, bitter primaries hurt high-profile candidates' chances in the general election. 
And basically what this says is it, so it's using bitter interchangeably with competitive. The problem with this study and others is they don't account for, and Nate Silver at 538 came to the same conclusion, citing this research as well, that if you have a primary with a lot of candidates, it actually hurts the party in the general election. The connection is somewhat spurious, but the data set was large enough to show causality. But what it doesn't account for is the severity of the criticism or the kind of existential nature of the criticism. And obviously on a presidential level, we have lots of counterfactuals. The Republican primary in 2016 was way more competitive and way more severe and way more hurtful than the Democratic one. Yet the Republican won. Of course, he didn't win the most votes, but he won. And you could argue that he won exactly because it was so contentious and so ugly and so bitter that made him more popular. I'm not saying that is evidence that that should always happen. but Yeah, but and then, of course, you have the 2008 primary between Obama and Clinton. Obama, of course, that was very bitter. Obama ended up winning. This idea of bitter is also bizarre to me. But then there's a separate question of just generalized intraparty fighting have a negative effect. And to this point, as Azari points out, there's not really a lot of evidence of this. So there is a piece of dogma that the John Favreau's and Neera Tandon's of the world assert, which is that intraparty fighting helps the Republicans. And there isn't really any evidence that supports that. And that is an empirical claim, right? It is an empirical claim to say, don't argue in front of the children it's going to help Republicans. Now, then there's the glaring fact, which I also brought up to Asari on Twitter, and she sort of conceded was was definitely a factor, is that um, wouldn't it be extremely convenient for the people who run the Democratic Party, the people who are in the leaderships, the chairs, the media, the sort of Center for American Progress, who get all the big donors who've been running the party for the last 20 years, wouldn't it be extremely convenient for them if criticizing them per se also helped Republicans. That would work out pretty well for them, right? Because then you could basically deflect any criticism to say you're helping the other side. There's this kind of wartime mentality where in effect, and this is a question I've asked on Twitter on numerous occasions, there is in effect never a good time to criticize Democrats. I actually made a graphic just for Twitter that was says when you can criticize Democratic Party leaders and Democratic Party orthodoxy, and it's a circular loop, You can't do it before presidential and midterm elections because that helps the Republican Party, obviously. You can't do it right after presidential and midterm elections because that's sour grapes and mean-spirited. And you can't do it when the GOP is trying to do evil shit because we got to rally around the team and any blue will do. And what I argue is that there's basically a two-day period that's never revealed to us in which we're permitted to criticize the Democrats. Unless there's a school shooting then, and then you can't. Yeah. And so this seems very convenient. And I asked this question in earnest one time. There was Brian Fallon who was – Hillary Clinton's campaign manager and sort of all around doofus. He doesn't strike me as a particularly bright guy. He said in July of 2017, about two years ago, he said um, there was an article in Mike that said Kamala Harris, a rising Democratic star, faces a problem. The burning wing of the party is skeptical of her, which basically went by and said progressive criticisms of Kamala Harris. And he said, quote, if you are attacking Harris right now, the problem is you, not her. Which is completely meaningless. Right. So then I asked him, I said, serious question. When is an acceptable time to criticize her? Like, like, give me a specific date. Like, what date would be good? Because you can't do it three years before the general election, two years before the primary. You can't do it. Like, when would be an okay time to do it? He, of course, never got back to me. I emailed him. I said, what time period can I criticize Kamala Harris? He never got back to me. The reality, of course, is there is no right time period. These are just ways of shutting up criticism. Because if you're a partisan hack, if you're like Brian Fallon, if you blew the most wide open layup in the history of elections – Two things you'd want to do more than anything are blame a foreign government and two say, oh, well, you're not really allowed to criticize people who are running things because doing so per se helps the Republican Party. Again, that seems like the stars sort of aligned really well for that one. (laughs) 
Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. Choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Babbel's teaching method and speech recognition technology has been proven to be effective across multiple studies, in addition to my own personal experience, actually. Uh, plus, I must say, it is a great way to engage your mind in a way that is completely separate from politics. We all need to take a break from the news, uh, but that doesn't mean that you just have to veg in front of the television. Uh, Babbel has been a great way for me to take a break from work, but still be learning something interesting and useful, uh, but without a single mention of Trump. And the lessons are engaging and convenient. They only last 10 to 15 minutes, so you can fit them into your schedule. And you learn through interactive dialogues, so you can perfect your pronunciation and accent. For a limited time, listeners can go to Babbel.com and get a whole year of access to Babbel for as low as $3.50 a month. Go to Babbel.com and select your language to get started today. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Babbel. Speak a new language with confidence. First, like, to Pelosi's initial statement about the uh the the squad representing just four votes in the house and she's referring to the the four of them voting against this uh border expenditure bill can you remind people also of that vote and what what the details of that were yeah the origins of the initial comments that were you know, fairly disparaging were in response to the fact that Ocasio-Cortez, along with um, the other three, all voted against a House bill um, on border funding that Nancy Pelosi had right, really tried to push through. It is true that they were the only four votes against it. But th- keep in mind that this uh, border bill came in a moment of a real humanitarian crisis where we're seeing, you know, young children ripped apart from their parents. We're seeing people forced to, you know, climb on top of each other in these really rancid cells at our southern border. It's a real national tragedy that's going on right now. And these are some of the most outspoken leaders in calling out this crisis and demanding a real resolution to it. So they, uh, I think, saw this bill as continuing to finance this same deportation regime that has existed in this country for a long time, not just under President Trump, but under Obama and before him as well. And they, you know, taking a stand and saying, we can't continue to pour more coal into this fire of, you know, horrors down at this southern border and instead need to demand something more. Now, what happened is that that bill didn't even end up coming to the floor for a final vote. They ended up voting on the Senate bill, which was even um, provided even more funding for more marshals and border agents and other parts of this deportation machine while providing even less humanitarian aid. So, you know, at the same time that they're taking this stand and getting called out for it by the Speaker of the House, what ended up happening is she was pushing through an even more retrograde bill. So that is the real origins of this um, conflict. And I think it speaks to much larger fissures in the party. Right. That's what I was going to say, that it's such a perfect encapsulation, both of the uh, the way that the Democratic Party has operated for decades, which is, uh, you know, being up against this sort of uh, morally abhorrent reactionary Republican Party uh, and occasionally saying the right things about 
the moral abhorrence of that party. And yet when it comes time to legislate, they basically give, you know, three quarters, four fifths of the farm away uh, to the Republicans. And then on immigration specifically, because that has been the story of the party on, on immigration in particular uh, for the last, what, three decades, if not more. Uh, which is compromising constantly with the uh, Republicans who are trying to pursue this more and more draconian border regime. And you, they end up, again, just giving giving the whole thing away to them, basically uh, being accomplices in the border regime that we have, not because they're the ones who are uh, actively proposing these new reactionary measures most of the time, but because they're essentially... Uh, they're not acting like a real opposition to them. Uh, and this, so both in terms of like a general theory of change, uh, or lack thereof, uh, as well as on the issue of immigration specifically, it seems like a perfect example of what's wrong with the Democratic Party and why it is important and necessary to have someone like AOC and, and the squad joining her to fight against it and taking this kind of uncompromising moral stance against voting for such a moral abomination. Well, what I point out in the piece is that, you know, Ocasio-Cortez's immigration platform rests on decriminalizing border crossings without proper documentation, um, massively funding uh, aid to Central American uh, countries in the Northern Triangle, the same countries, Honduras, Nicaragua, these countries that uh, have seen horrible crises, uh, oftentimes due to American intervention and or American assisted intervention. Um, you know, we saw a coup in Honduras uh, while Hillary Clinton was secretary of state under uh, Obama that has led to horrid conditions in that country. A lot of reasons that have caused this crisis did happen, in fact, under Democratic administrations. Um, and, you know, Ocasio-Cortez is also calling for abolishing ICE. This is a, you know, was once seen a, a radical position, but now more and more Democrats are signing on board, even um, presidential candidates like Christian Gillibrand and Mark Pocan of Wisconsin, a representative, are now on board with abolishing ICE. So there's areas where I think Ocasio-Cortez herself, along with her, um, you know, lifting up the voices of movements, has helped to drag the party in a more progressive direction. In a recent interview in the, with The New Yorker, uh, AOC even called for abolishing the Department of Homeland Security, essentially, and saying that that was a institution that served uh, to you know, cause more harm than good, essentially, in, in America. So that is so far of a, I think that that's, you know, a very understandable progressive position on the issue of immigration. It's very far from where the Democratic Party has been, you know, for so many years, the party has talked about further militarizing the border, putting border security at the centerpiece of um, any immigration plan. And this, by border security, it doesn't mean just, you know, having some guards. It means drones and, you know, walls and detention centers and all these things. Um, and, and the locking up people, uh, in overcrowded, like, you know, not giving people soap, not giving people the whole, the whole laundry list of things that yeah. we've seen on the border. The Democrats have long gone a along with that. And, you know, you said they're, they're not proposing measures, but I mean, even under Bill Clinton, we saw, uh, you know, deportations go up. Rahm Emanuel, the, his, um, a, a, an aide for him, uh, who's of course gone on to have such an illustrious career. He, uh, famously said to Bill Friend Clinton. Friend of the podcast, Rahm Emanuel. <laughs> of course. He, uh, said that, you know, 
Clinton needed to achieve a record number of deportations. Later, he worked for Obama as his chief of staff and again pushed Obama to uh, up the deportation regime. So it's not as if Democrats' hands have been clean on this. And I think that that's really part of the reason that this is such a shock to the system. You know, earlier you were talking about how, you know, people might have seen these, this war of words as petty or, you know, just kind of a tit for tat back and forth. But I think it really does speak to this much broader um, fight within the party over what its direction is going to be going forward. And it's a fight that we've just started to to really see come out into the open. It's been long debated and kind of mythologized of, oh, what's going on? What is the future of the Democratic Party? I think that this really is a moment where we're starting to see sides taken and we're starting to see these real these debates come out into the open. And it's not happening strictly within the 2020 primary where many people might have thought it would happen. It's happening within the House Democratic Caucus. And I think that's an important place for it to happen because, you know, in 2016, a a lot of people saw Bernie Sanders as kind of an outsider. And understandably, I mean, he was an independent. Um, he remains an independent in Vermont. Uh, as CNN recently reported, he long even talked about the Democratic Party as being essentially irredeemable, being unreformable. Uh, so it's understandable that his, you know, Democratic colleagues in the uh, Congress would look at him with suspicion. Look at, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and Presley and Tlaib. These are the people that are considered the future of the party. You know, they're on the cover of Rolling Stone. These are the people that are being lauded as representing the new face of the Democratic Party. And clearly they are representing a very different vision of what the Democratic Party stands for than what Pelosi and her centrist colleagues have um, been pushing for decades now. And so we, that that is a fight that needs to be had. And I think that this is the way it's coming to the fore. fact of the matter is, is that in 2020, the vote is going to be about Donald Trump. And the question is, are you going to give your base any reason not to vote against Donald Trump? Like, not, not just to, to vote for somebody, else, but I mean, like, literally, are you going to give your base any reason to stay at home? Or are you going to make it a clear sort of choice that they're making? And that is to go out and vote against Donald Trump and not have any misgivings. Are you going to have an activated base? And activated people who stayed at home during uh, 2016. I mean, that's really the question. We know that Trump's people came out as much as they were ever going to come out. They did not come out in 2018. Some Republicans had, I think... Um, one of their best turnouts in a midterm as well. It's just Democrats went even even further. And they did not, like, th th this is what it's kind of come down to. How many people get to the polls, particularly in these states? And so it doesn't matter what somebody in Michigan thinks of AOC. It doesn't matter in terms of them not liking her because the the jump from there to I'm going to vote for Trump where I otherwise wouldn't is just very hard to understand but it does 
if you want in Milwaukee more African-American turnout, if you want more African-American people of color turnout in Michigan, you best not crap on the people who are representing the interests of those people who are speaking out on behalf of those people. Because then you start to wonder if you're one of those people, it would be irrational otherwise. So like, is this a, is this a party that's really in my interests, or even has the potential to be in my interests? Because anytime we get some voice in there that we appreciate, they get sidelined and attacked. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. You know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies. Owned by the richest dude in the world. That one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then. Maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases. I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case... You might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does. Does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. If you say the Democrats shouldn't center things like conversations about racism because it, quote unquote, plays into the hands of Trump, unquote, you've effectively created a heckler's veto. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know what a heckler's veto is, it's a general principle of free speech that you can't shut down a protest or a rally because it may cause violence because if you do that, you create a chilling effect on speech and you effectively give a veto power for anyone who's willing to cause violence. And just the same, if you're going to not talk about things or not be progressive because it may in some 11-dimensional chess simulation you've run on your computer may help Trump in 2020, then we've effectively given Trump control of democratic priorities. Because of that fundamental principle of talking about fascism and racism, actual things that are important. And you say, well, you can't talk about those because that's just going to be exactly what Trump wants. It's going to rile up his base. It's going to give him more fodder for his attacks. And therefore, Ilhan Omar and AOC and Rashida Tlaib uh, and Ayanna Presley, et cetera, et cetera, whoever else, and immigrants and refugees and any black people and any brown people and any people in this country or other countries. Like, if you talk about anyone's interests, that would somehow then double back on itself and play into Trump's hands. Ooh, that's just what they want. Then, yes, I mean, as you said, Adam, like, then it is just conceding any it's conceding the entire democratic platform and conceding any possible conversation to the very people who want to destroy all of those things. We talked about this in the episode about trans rights as a boutique issue. Bill Maher, before the election, 
fall of 2016 said, you need to set aside trans issues. Like it's sort of not important. We need to win this election, right? There's always right. some, there's always some ticking time bomb emergency mm-hmm. where minorities have to shut the fuck up because, because there are like more important issues to discuss, Adam. Yeah. There's like seven NASCAR dads in, in some county in Ohio that we have to win or, you know, so, but of course, there's never a right time. There's never a right time to assert your rights or to have conversations you think are important. What Ocasio-Cortez says to her credit, again, someone who I think is a very good media critic says, I'm going to talk about what I'm going to talk about. That's going to happen regardless of what other sort of 2020 simulation Nate Silver runs or or some meta conversation about the impact of of how I'm being quote unquote elevated. I don't give a shit. This is what I was elected to do. It's a far more elegant way of viewing politics because then politics becomes not about some sort of meta game theory about what's going to read here and what's going to play there. It's just about what's right and it's about what's good. And just on a, on a purely practical level, mm-hmm. it is so much easier to do that. And secondly, I think it, I do think it reads false. I think voters begin to read false when people have these conversations about how to appeal to this nebulous, what it, suburban moms, what did Thomas mm-hmm. Friedman say? That like it, this is obviously what you're calibrating your party to. And I do think that in the aggregate, that depresses turnout. It depresses turnout for minorities. You know, if you tell minorities, you know, over and over again that this really isn't about you because that we have bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Then why would I, sh- then why would I show up? Why would I donate? Why would I campaign if everything we do has to calibrate to this nebulous moderate voter? And I think, mm-hmm. and I think that there's now a movement pushing back against that. And I think those who've, those who've built their political careers in the institutional power, and by, and by institutional, I mean, I mean that in the strictest sense, which is no matter who wins or loses, the same people are still in charge of the major pillars of the Democratic Party, that the specter of don't criticize me lest you help the Republicans is how they've mm-hmm. – it's the entire moral authority they have. And when you take that away or when you challenge that or when you challenge the premise of electability, then they have nothing else because that's what they've always had. Because what you're actually doing is asking what do you fucking stand for? And when the answer is, I stand for whole numbers and dividing my messages based on what audience I'm addressing and who the consultants have told me, this is a key audience, that's a key audience, those over there, well, they're with you anyway, so don't worry about it. Then it's not about ideology, it's about audience. And what AOC, as you were saying, is doing is saying, no, 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 this is about ideology, <laughs> This is not just about parsing superficial political dividing lines on the, again, completely false premise without evidence that doing this is somehow a losing strategy. That like talking about what is really fucking important, talking about what this society should look like to be totally hokey about it, like real fundamental questions about who the fuck we are, if that's not important then nothing's important. And to claim that that isn't important because evidence shows that once you do that, you can't win, it's just patently false and serves the power structures as they currently are. Yeah, it's because it's it's an empirical claim, right? Which is we win elections. Like Pelosi's moral authority is such that it is derived from this this nebulous idea of both competency and Chuck Schumer as well, this nebulous idea of competency and winning. But it's not clear what exactly they're winning. Okay, they won Obamacare 10 years ago. That was sort of okay. They lost a 1,000 seats across the country, then maybe gained like 50 to 100 back after the 2018 midterms. Like, it's not clear if your moral authority derives from competency and winning and you don't really do either, it's not clear where the moral authority is being derived from. And I think there's a genuine idea that these emerging progressives can challenge that moral authority because there's no one behind the curtain. There's nothing really there. 
Rebecca Vilkomerson, uh, you've been banned from going into Israel. Can yes. you talk about what happened to Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar? Clearly a story that's still developing. Yeah, I mean, I think what the, the news today that Rashida was given um, what was called by on humanitarian grounds allowed to enter, um, I think really reflects how much Israel considers itself entitled to completely control the lives and all kinds of movement of all Palestinian people. And, you know, Rashida was forced to make a decision that Palestinians are often forced to make because of the way that Israel controls its borders and for decades hasn't been letting Palestinians in. So in a lot of ways, this is just a continuation of ongoing Israeli policies. And it's been there's a spotlight on it because Rashida Tlaib is a U.S. congressperson. There's a spotlight on it because it is unprecedented that, that a sitting president would suggest to a foreign country that a member of his own government should not be allowed into the country. And so from an American political perspective, I think that's very unprecedented. But from the Israeli perspective, this is a continuation of their ongoing policies of separation and apartheid and um, ethnic discrimination. Um, it's not any different than the ways what they've been pursuing f for decades now. Uh, and you yourself have been barred from going into Israel? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, we're sort of a late-breaking entry that Israel has now started to ban people who support the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and are trying to control the political thought um, and the political expression of people um, who disagree with their policies. But again, you know, that's 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 based on years and years and years of um, that kind of ethnic and um, religious discrimination that they've been imposing. I mean, it is quite astounding, a kind of bit irony that you have President Trump going after the squad, the four congresswomen, Ayanna Presse, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, telling them to go back to their countries, three of them, including Rashida Tlaib, born in the United States. But here he said, go back to their countries. And now he is demanding of Israel um, that Israel not allow Rashida Tlaib, who is the first Palestinian-American uh, congresswoman, from returning to her uh, family land where her grandmother lives. Right. And that should be her human right. You know, she shouldn't have to ask for a special exception to that. But I think it's important that we focus here on the role of the Democrats, because actually the Democrats' absolute inability to hold Israel accountable for any of its human rights violations is what has allowed it to continue to increase with impunity its, its repressive policies. And although, you know, the Democratic leadership made some statements in support of the two congresswomen yesterday, in reality, for months and, in fact, years now, they've been working against the boycott, divestment and sanction movements, trying to pass legislation against the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, calling it anti-Semitic. So they have contributed to the demonization and delegitimization of these congresswomen, which resulted in this action. And I think there's this is a real key moment for the Democrats, because um, while the old guard like Pelosi and Schumer and Hoyer, who are the who defend Israel at all costs, um, the young younger people, people of color, women and, you know, all the polls show that that's true of that 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 has very much that's the that's the population of people who have shifted in their positions on Israel in the last years and is represented by people like the squad that there's a real disconnect between the old guard democrats and the new democrats and that they have you know there needs to be some actual concrete action that platitudes are not enough anymore we had mark pokan yesterday saying we should potentially condition aid to israel we've had betty mccollum's bill which is trying to um place conditions on aid that's allowing Israel to put Palestinian children into jail. Um, we have, you know, um, Representative Omar's um, legislation to protect the BDS movement. These are all actual concrete actions that Democrats could take to 
protect their own colleagues rather than allowing Trump and Netanyahu to set the agenda. And I think that's what we need to look for now is those kinds of actions. And I'm very thrilled because JVP actually, a couple days ago, I couldn't have been able to talk in these terms. So we're now just launching um, JVP Action, which is our sister organization. So we're going to be doing electoral work, um, defending our champions and holding elected officials accountable. And I think that's a reflection of where we are in the movement. We're starting to be able to push policies because we do have this rift in the Democratic Party. So, Shahid, there is um, obviously, um, you know, a lot of questions. I imagine that uh, you come across some measure of skepticism in some quarters uh, as to why you would be challenging Nancy Pelosi, um, both in terms of she's obviously rather well funded, uh, but also many people have a perception of her that in the um in the context of the the democratic party um that she's uh progressive i think people would would say you know she um she was originally a member of the progressive caucus um why why are you primarying her from the left i'm primarying speaker pelosi from the left because as the democratic speaker of the house Unfortunately, she all too often supports conservative policies and conservative figures. She protects the president, a criminal president, from impeachment. She's funded voluntarily, without being coerced in any way, Trump's concentration camps without securing any protections for human rights. She's insisted upon Republican fiscal austerity rules that constrain the progressive aspirations of the emerging House majority the largest caucus in the House, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is one that she co-founded, yet she consistently uh, turns a deaf ear to that caucus's interests. You know, Speaker Pelosi is a avowed opponent of universal health care. She derides robust solutions to the mounting global climate crisis. She presided over a historical collapse in federal spending on affordable housing. She helped sweep CIA torture under the rug. She funded Bush's wars. I could go on. Uh, but the reputation she has as a progressive is entirely undeserved by today's standards. She may have been a progressive by yesterday's standards, and I appreciate and applaud the work that she's done over the course of her 30-year career. But if there is anything that is increasingly clear with every passing day in our country, it is that we need a transition in leadership generationally to people who are more acquainted with the experience of working people, to people who are more concerned about the future and the various mounting environmental, constitutional, international crises that the failed leadership of the past continues, unfortunately, to create and fester instead of fixing. And that's why I'm here. Um, let's 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 talk about a couple of those. Um, I know that you um, you took a tour of uh, of of one of these uh, concentration camps down at the border um, with children, and, and we should say that um, you're specifically referencing uh, the uh, four point I think it's six or four point nine billion dollar uh, bill that is uh, funding um, theoretically the um, uh, the expansion and uh, providing uh, resources to house uh children to to basically imprison them um 
there were uh, progressive defectors. To illegally imprison them. I mean, that's a worth, thing worth noting. Is that we have no authority to detain these people, right? This is an illegal enterprise from the outset. That Speaker Pelosi could have defunded, like she could have defunded Bush's illegal wars, but at every opportunity to support a military-industrial complex, even when it undermines human rights. Again, unfortunately, Speaker Pelosi has, has not been on the side of this city. She's instead represented the Beltway in Washington. Why do you think that? I mean, why do you think that message has not gotten out? And or, or let me let me rephrase that. To what extent do you oh, think your will. message is getting out? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I yeah. mean, because I think that like there's listen, we are living in a uh, a different era now, as you say, and the um, for many many years, uh, those of us on the left have been told. This is the best we can do. I, I, I have ideas. You know, uh, Barack Obama famously said, um, you know, if we had a different uh, situation in America, we could have Medicare for all. He said that back in 2008. He's, he's since uh, said a different thing in 2018 that it's a, it's a, it's an idea whose time has come. But um, but at that time, you know, we are always told on the left that we are proposing by many in the Democratic Party, we are proposing as much as the uh, as left as we can go. But that has shifted. And it does seem like Nancy Pelosi has not shifted along with it. To what extent do you think that message is is that people understand that concept? Uh, and then it, to the extent that anybody doesn't in your district, how will you let them know that? Yeah, our message is certainly out there. And I wouldn't even say it taken me to deliver it. I've, I've uh, only half-jokingly said publicly that Speaker Pelosi appears to be campaigning on my behalf recently. And, and it's very much to the point that you're making. She is revealing the relative conservatism implicit in her, not just policy and not just her representation or her rhetoric, but just her entire paradigm, as you were reflecting. You know, the progressives of today are much bolder than those who preceded us. And what you're ultimately reflecting on. And I think what the body politic is only in, only now starting to understand beyond the context of Bernie Swift 2016, beyond the context of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in 2018, is that we are living through a generational transition in American politics. And it will be an earthquake. By the time it is done, the boomers will be gone. The millennials are already the largest generational voting bloc. And that's why Bernie did so well in 2016. It's why he'll be the next president. It's why Speaker Pelosi's career is uh, uh, nearing its end, and it's why I'm increasingly poised to replace her. In terms of how do we get the message out across the district, it's a combination of ground game, uh, traditional media engagement, the conversation we're having now, as well as very robust social media outreach. And our ground game is stronger than it ever got in 2018. In 2018, I got as many votes as Representative Ocasio-Cortez did in her primary in three months without any media attention. We have a full year this time. We're getting media attention. We have nearly daily mobilizations, hundreds of volunteers. There are signs up all over the city, and we're still a year out from the election. So I have a great deal of confidence that unless Speaker Pelosi recovers a willingness to represent the district, which is to say if she continues representing the Beltway first, she will number her own days in the House, and I'm very eager, certainly, to offer the voters of San Francisco an alternative, and having received the support, we're at 4,000 donors now from across the city, across the Bay Area, the state, and even the entire country, uh, we're increasingly poised to liberate the seat. That's exactly what I plan to do. 
Right, which actually also speaks to how really so much of this is about setting the terms of the debate in general. Right. What is allowed to be said, what is not allowed to be said. And, you know, something we were discussing earlier on the show is the idea of using AOC and Ilhan Omar as obviously punching bags on the right and for Fox News, but that even this kind of blue checkmark liberal set saying, well, they actually need to be deplatformed, not centered in the main ideological push of the party, because what else, what will this do, but play into the hands of Trump, right? Play into the hands of the Republicans. It's giving them more ammunition. You're going to rile up the racists and their now anointed leader. And so basically what you're doing, and we were talking about this earlier, as I said, is you're granting the heckler's veto to Trump and to his supporters to say, whatever the demarcations of the Democratic Party platform are going to be, it's not going to be that because that just pisses off our opposition, which is just granting opposition, you know, edit rights over your own platform. Can you, Max, discuss a little bit of the really insidious implication of this, you know, don't rile up the beast strategy? Why is this popular? And where do you see it going from here? This is something that always breaks my brain a bit, right? Because I think that on one hand, it's important to recognize that that this is a kind of knee-jerk reaction, or this can be a kind of tendency that people can express on other sides of the political spectrum, right? Because I remember kind of writing about this for the baffler like last year when i was at the university of michigan doing a lot of organizing with grad students and faculty and non-university affiliated people right we were mobilizing against richard spencer coming to campus and doing a lot of great stuff throughout the year and in the process right we like other people around the country especially people on college campuses we're actually getting a lot of shit from other people on the left who were you know Trying to make the argument that anti-fascist, anti-racist politics in this kind of mode is bad. Yeah, it's just helping. It's giving them publicity, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which, by the way, turned out to not be true with using about 75 different indicators. Right. And lo and behold, like Richard Spencer ended his college tour after we met him and his Nazis at Michigan State. But, you know, like another thing that blew my mind was that I wrote this piece called Anti-Fascism and the Left's Fear of Power. Right. And, and so I think the point I'm trying to make is that I've seen this on the left as well, right? But it was like, you know, people arguing that by protesting controversial speakers or racist speakers like, you know, Charles Murray to Richard Spencer, right? Like using different tactics to express discontent and protect our communities and so on and so forth, that this was giving ammunition to reactionaries in the media and in state legislatures who are going to use it to further crack down on student dissent, to further kind of implement policies and state laws that would make it easier for students to be expelled for doing this kind of activism and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing that kind of broke my brain is I was like, do you think they haven't been doing that anyway? Like, what world are you living in where this is not the game that has been played for the past 30, even 40, 50 years, right? <laughs> right. This goes deep into kind of the launch of like Reagan's old political career in opposition to students at Berkeley, right? I mean, like they're going to find a boogeyman to justify this politics. Mm -hmm. And it just, it blows my mind to think that it is an effective political strategy 
to limit your options to what your opposition or even your enemies think is permissible, right? That is not the point of politics, right? The point is not to not ruffle the feathers of, you know, racist people who are chanting that Ilhan Omar should be sent back. The point is to beat them. And I don't understand, you know, like why that is such a hard thing to wrap our head around. Well, because for, I think, you know, say Pelosi as a catch-all term, but, you know, Pelosi and other establishment Democrats, the idea is not to beat them. It is to win them over, mm. right? It's like those Klan rallies that Trump is leading, I don't think are fundamentally seen in like the centrist community and certainly not in the moderate Republican community, whatever the fuck that is, as being they need to be ostracized and destroyed politically, right? No, rather it is how do we appeal to the majority of that audience to get them to vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> That's the thought process. It's not saying, no, our votes come from elsewhere. We need to talk to them. Right. And, and you know, I think it goes back to um, what I was kind of saying um, in response to your first question, right? Because the way I even approach this um, discussion is by trying to kind of understand how the Democrats have placed themselves over the past, you know, three decades and, you know, how that corresponds to kind of centrism as an ideology. But I think the reason that I, you know, was trying to kind of walk through that path was because I think that that is fundamental to understanding just why this is such a bad strategy and why, in fact, it is stoking the very kinds of things that people like Pelosi believe that they are resolving with this sort of tactic, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, like like I was saying, that the kind of end of history conceit that, you know, the new Democrats would occupy forever and ever more the political center, right? You know, like what it has done in many ways is kind of set the board for the kinds of um, forces of reaction that we're seeing today. And and one way I think that hasn't been talked about much, but is starting to enter into our political debates, right, is that for almost three decades now, the new Democrats have kind of squatted down in what they see as the political middle. And they have taken it upon themselves to secure the American machine and to manage the contradictions within in it right to manage the class contradictions just enough so that rich people stay rich and the rest of us don't starve and have enough consumeristic choices so that we still believe that we're free right they are there to manage the contradictions of our imperialist war machines so that our you know economic interests are served but our safety at home isn't compromised. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they see it as their role to manage the contradictions between political forces on their left and on their right. But like in the process, the Democratic establishment has basically colonized the territory of liberal republicanism. And we now call the people on that side of the party moderates of the Democratic Party. And what this has done is left a vacuum in the Republican Party to be filled by different illiberal conservative factions who have no political or ideological interest in centrist compromise. And you are seeing that at Trump's rallies.
We've just heard clips today, starting with No Filter, laying out the details of the spark that started the most recent flare-up between establishment and progressive Democrats. Citations Needed explained that calls for party unity are really just a way to silence dissent. The Vast Majority discussed the legacy of Democrats compromising with Republicans on immigration policy. The Majority Report explained the politics of losing progressive voters by antagonizing the progressive wing of the party. Citations Needed continued their discussion focusing on how squashing dissent always focuses on the most disenfranchised. Democracy Now! discussed Israel banning Congresswomen Tlaib and Omar from the country and how this is yet another issue that highlights the split in the Democratic Party. Ring of Fire spoke with a challenger running in a primary campaign against Nancy Pelosi. And finally, we just heard citations needed with a guest explaining the self-defeating strategy of limiting one's own options as a strategy to placate an opposition party that is impossible to placate. Members of this week will hear some more on the topic of how silencing dissent is really just about retaining power for the powerful, and more analysis of how the politics of the squad is so much more palatable to real people than the calculating nonsense of establishment politicians. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is B from Central New York. I have been recently uh, catching up on your latest episodes and uh, found myself listening to your healthcare episode, basically. Uh, I've listened to it a few times already and uh, enjoying its content very much. This topic is one of significant importance to me. In my family, we lost our patriarch and matriarch very, very young, or should I say I was very young when it happened, but uh, all the children were quite young when it happened. And I watched up close what government-sponsored healthcare could do for a family which was reeling from one tragedy and was just barely maintaining itself away from another. And um, briefly to explain that comment, when I was a young teenager, my father unexpectedly passed away. And my mother, who was battling emphysema at the time of his death, had been given mere months to live without a lung transplant. Somehow, some way, the cosmos aligned itself, and my mother, about a month and a half after my father's death, was given that lung. Uh, tragically, someone else had to die in order for her to receive it, but she did receive it. She then went into operations, after operations, to um, remove the old lung and then place the new one in and then subsequent operations to maintain the quality and health of her body while it acclimated itself to the lung. The surgery itself cost somewhere in the area of $350,000. My family was not wealthy. We were far from it. And I remember my mother saying to me one day, 
as uh, this was a couple months after her surgery, she had been allowed to come home and she was on a very stern regimen of pills, as you might imagine, as well as several large bags of uh, intravenous fluid. And she began showing me the bottles of pills that she was taking and telling me how much each one costs. What has always stuck in my mind is the fact that one of the bottles, which contained around 50 pills, maybe 60, each of those pills cost $100. And she said to me, without a smile, without irony, that if it was not for the government paying for her medication and for the surgery, at that moment, that particular moment in time, she would have been dead. I have related this story to many people who are anti-national health care, who are anti-socialized medicine, and not one of them has had a good retort to it. But in addition to that story, because it is one that is very near and dear to me, I often bring up a, another argument which most progressives should definitely utilize. And that is simply this. The conservative argument for not starting a national health care system or even implementing a public option has been that it is going to destroy competition. And that competition would lead to lower prices and better health care quality. This has been their argument since the 1960s. That's a great argument. That's fine. However, it has not proven to be true. In fact, consolidation, less competition, has been the rule of the industry. And even where competition has been well established and maintained, this has not driven prices down, but because of a cartel mentality, prices have gone up. In other words, the argument that is made is moot. It has been proven to be false. If an individual wants to continue making the argument, then I always ask them to give a specific time frame when that argument would then be proven true. And if they are unwilling to do that, then that means they understand that the argument is false and they are lying. It is time as progressives that we understand uh, that the arguments that are often made are faulty, not based on premise, but based on fact. And we must argue them that way. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. My name is Linda. I'm calling from New Jersey, specifically the Jersey Shore. And I just started uh, listening to podcasts a few months back. And after a search, found your podcast. It's wonderful. I can't believe how much you do. Anyway, 
I'm sorry that you're losing listeners, but you've just gained this one. And I've just recently become a supporter of your podcast. And God, I hope that it continues. Thank you so much uh, for what you do. And uh, I'll continue listening. Take care. I hope you feel better. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, thanks to Linda, who we just heard from, brand new member, uh, brand new listener who signed up for membership uh, right away. It's very much appreciated and thanks for the kind note i am feeling better by the way i have finished my regimen of uh antibiotics and so i'm definitely feeling better i'm just still tired like i feel like i need naps all the time and i don't have time to take them uh so i I think i'm still recovering but feeling good enough to you know go through life in a relatively normal way uh, and then my, the last thing I'll say to Linda, as I'll say to any new listener, is um, please just go ahead and tell like a thousand of your friends about the show, as, as you've heard, for a variety of reasons that I think have a lot less to do with the show and more to do with um, the horrors, the horrors uh, of politics. You know, people are, are dropping out. And to be honest, I can't blame them. I just really wish they wouldn't, (laughs) not just for my own sake, but for the sake of uh, the country who really needs people to be engaged. Uh, But I mean, you you know that because you're hanging in there. You're still listening, not just Linda, you know, everyone. So, um, you know, one of the comments I I got recently uh, and just uh, across the board, thanks to everyone who has been signing up. It's, It's been great that people have sort of heard me say like, hey, you know, like progressive shows aren't doing as good as they really should be given the circumstances uh, since everyone should be rallying behind all progressive causes right now you'd think we'd be doing better uh, and, and people have been saying oh my god I, I didn't realize like i assumed everyone was doing okay because how could they not be and it turns out that everyone assuming progressive media outlets are probably doing okay okay under trump leads to them doing maybe not so okay as uh, as you would expect so um, one one uh, quick little story I have for you, which and I, I love anytime I get an opportunity to tell this story because I realized about 15 years ago now that conservative policies, their their policy proposals, the things they believe we should actually do. I, I learned about 15 years ago that they are at about the level of a 10-year-old's understanding of how the world works. And I came to that conclusion because I kept hearing about all these conservative policies, and I was like, wait a second, that was my idea when I was 10 years old, and then I grew up and learned how the world works and realized that all of my ideas from when I was 10 didn't make any sense. So like one example was when I was 10, I was really concerned about the idea of universal healthcare because it would put all the people in uh, in healthcare companies out of a job. And I thought, oh my god, like could we really do that? Should we do that? That seems really bad. Maybe we shouldn't have universal universal healthcare. And then I grew up 
but people still say that, <laughs> just not anyone on the left. And uh, today's example, you know, best of the left doesn't do like topical news all that often, like super topical. But this week, I guess the news, in addition to Trump being kinged, uh, uh, crowned king of Israel and saying that he's the chosen one, um, his, his other main thing is that he's really upset that uh, America is not going to get to buy Greenland. And it, it, I just couldn't help but think back. I was like, wait a second, buying other countries, that was my idea when I was 10. And then I grew up and learned how the world worked. But my thinking, and I'll explain, when I was 10, here, here are the pieces of information I had. On one hand, I learned that America has in the past bought areas of land, like Alaska. And second point is that countries often go to war with each other more often than a war will break out within a country, you know, a civil war. And so I remember asking my parents, you know, when I was, uh, to be fair to me, actually, I might have been more like seven. <laughs> um, and so I asked, like, why, you know, and, and then, oh, and the, the third point is, well, America's the richest country that's ever existed. So I was like, okay, so if we got all this money and we sometimes buy land or, or countries or whatever, then why don't we just keep doing that? Why don't we do that more so that we'll all just be one country and we can stop going to war with each other? And like for a seven-year-old or maybe between seven and ten, like that's pretty good reasoning. But then we all grew up and realized you shouldn't go around trying to buy other countries. And yet that's what Trump is up to this week. So... As I said, I'll take any excuse to to bring up the point that uh, conservative policies are the you know the the thinkings of a you know like a bright ten year old you know like you're you're real sharp you're you're looking out for the world and trying to solve problems. Way to go, little guy! Give it a few more years, figure out how the world works, and come back to me with some new ideas. And then the the last note uh, for today is I want to mention that uh, we do a poll each week to try to help determine what topics this show is going to cover. And what I realize is I've mentioned that before, but I've never mentioned what the actual options are. So I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can get into the habit of each Friday mentioning what the upcoming poll topics are so that if you have an opinion, you will be moved to express it. So today's Poll options for upcoming topics include, uh, number one, designing cities and infrastructure for a climate-friendly future, actually designing our cities and towns with climate change in mind. Secondly, understanding the effects of the trade war with China. Obviously, this is sort of a slow-moving story that's just been going on for months, and so we could uh, make an episode, try to wrap our minds around that. Uh, number three, the rekindled impeachment debate in the wake of the Mueller testimony. It was sort of seen that, okay, <laughs> we're getting more and more information out. Where is there going to be a tipping point? Are we going to go for impeachment or not? Fourth, the recent ICE raids, of course, against uh, undocumented immigrants and looking at the impact on families and the immigration debate and so forth. Uh, number five, the Brazilian rainforest is on fire. I don't know if you've heard, but there are you know direct 
it's the, the whole fire is basically a direct attack on indigenous people in Brazil. And we would also obviously look at the uh, growing fascism of the president Bolsonaro and the fact that there's a media blackout and it took like weeks for anyone to realize that this was happening. Uh, number six, uh, the financials of the NRA and for the effects of foreign money in politics. We could tie in uh, good old Moscow Mitch McConnell and, and the, yeah, basically um, the tie, the foreign money ties as if money in politics wasn't bad enough, the foreign money ties to our American politicians. And then as I have on every poll every week, we absolutely welcome suggestions from listeners. So, some of the uh, options I just listed were suggestions from listeners, and lots of the episodes you've heard in recent months have been originally suggested by a listener, put on the poll, voted to the top, and then produced by us. So it's, it's a very involved process where uh, you know people are very much helping to make the show and helping guide the show. So I wanted to give you a little insight into that. And if you have an opinion on which of these topics you would like to hear in an upcoming uh, week... You can either find that poll by going to patreon.com slash best of left. You do not have to be a member. You don't have to pay anything. It's open to the public, um, but you can either find it there or there is a link directly to the poll in the show notes. It should be very easy to find. So check that out there. Now, that is going to be it for today. One last reminder before I go that Babbel is supporting today's episode. They are the language learning app designed to get you speaking a new language like Spanish, French, German quickly and with confidence. Babbel's interactive lessons are created by over 100 language experts, and they only last 10 to 15 minutes, so they're easy to fit in your schedule. For a limited time, listeners can go to babbel.com and get a whole year of access to Babbel for as low as $3.50 a month. Go to babbel.com and select your language to get started. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size. Again, at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.